When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Manage Smarter Show is brought to you by SalesQuid, the app that helps salespeople discover why they miss quota and what to do about it. Find out more at salescred.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. You know, Lee, in the history of the show, I don't think we've ever had another Lee on the show. So we could start with that. I don't think so. This is going to be very unusual, a little bizarre. So a little cumbersome, but we'll we'll plow our way through. We'll call him Lee number one and you can be Lee number two. The guest should always be put first. How about that? That could be our system. I don't like being referred to as number two, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the vice president of communications here at SalesFuel. And I'm Celia Smith. I'm the president and CEO of Sales Fuel. And our expert today, mind-blowing. I mean, this guy, six books out, all kinds of stuff. And an expert in, you know, there's tons of salespeople, but how do you differentiate how you do things and in the way that you do them and process? It's Lee Sauce, everyone. Lee, thanks for coming to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And, and it sounds like the theme of today is different because you said you've never had two Lees before. That's right. That's right? right. So we're right. different. Right off the bat, we've differentiated ourselves. That's right. Well, so, yeah. Go ahead, Lee. Yeah, go ahead, Audrey. I was going to say, well, for those who are not familiar with Mr. Saltz, he is the CEO of Sales Architects and an expert in sales differentiation, like I said, not to mention a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, and a business consultant. He's just a little busy. When yeah. salespeople are not winning deals at the desired levels or price points, executives and business owners give leave the call. He is the best-selling award-winning author. I said six books, including Sales Differentiation and Higher Right higher profits. And his sixth book, Sell Different, is out now uh, from HarperCollins, major publisher, which, yes, he's holding it up, which presents all new sales differentiation strategies to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition, which is what we all want. So, okay, what is different about Sell Different? Really? Yeah, really. Audrey. Yes. Is that really a nice way to start an interview? Sure. (laughs) We got two leads, and right in the first few moments, you put me on the spot. You think That's it's what she does to me, Lee, like, every morning. Every uh, morning. <laughs> I mean, really, is that a fair thing to ask me? Of course it is. It See, is. Folks, whether buyers ask you that point blank, like Audrey did, or they don't, it's on their minds every time they meet with you. They want to know what's different. And if you can't articulate it, if you can't demonstrate it, you know it wins the day, right? price. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's answer your question. What's different about sell different? I, I think you both agree. Sales has never been tougher than it is today. Competition's fierce. And we look at the differences in features and functions from one provider. They're, they're subtle. They're small. So executives aren't coming to their salespeople and saying, you know what? I know it's tough out there. We're going to cut your quote in half. And by the way, sell deals at, uh, 
20 fewer points. We're, we're okay <laughs> making less money on the deals. Not happening. They still expect their salespeople to win at high rates and at high margins, or as I just trademarked, how to win more deals at the prices you want. So how do you do that when the differences are so subtle in what you're selling? In some cases, even there's no difference at all. It means you have to sell different, which means looking at every touch point, every interaction you have, and looking for ways to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. So that's how you generate leads, how you prospect, how you handle discovery meetings, how you sell virtually. You know, there wasn't a plan, chapter planned on virtual selling when I put the book proposal together for HarperCollins. But then this little thing happened called the mm -hmm. pandemic. And you know what? There's now a chapter on virtual selling in Good. the book. Good. Uh, I had to deal with requests for pilots and trials and, and much, much more. It doesn't matter what you're selling or to whom you're selling. These are strategies that help you, just as I mentioned, outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. So my fundamental goal is to help you win more deals at the prices you want. And so each one of the 15 chapters lays out step-by-step -step a strategy to do just that. So I'm thinking about sales managers and rightly yep. or wrongly, mostly wrongly, uh, you know, when, when they're coaching salespeople, they're whacking poetically about their days out in the territory, back out in the field when, you know, this is how they would have handled it, blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, we're trying to get salespeople to sell different, but we have to get managers then to actually think different about how they coach sales. Is that, uh, so what would be your advice to managers then who are stuck in the past there, but but need to get up to speed then with you know, the salespeople that have read your books? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the first thing is, this is gonna be controversial. I hate the word closing mm. and sales managers, sales leaders love to talk about closing. And, and when their salespeople aren't effective at doing it, that's when I get phone calls. And so let me first explain why I hate the expression closing. The first thing is salespeople talk about being client centric and sales managers tell their salespeople, you've got to be client centric. Well, I assure you, no one woke up this morning and said, oh my gosh, I hope someone closes me today. Didn't happen. The other thing is it sends the wrong message to our salespeople, right? Close means it's the end, but there's upselling, there's cross-selling, there's references, there's referrals, there's so much more to get out of the relationship. So when, when we talk about closing, it's just nails on the chalkboard. It's not the right message that we want our buyers to experience with us. And it sends the wrong message to our salespeople. So I get these calls saying, how do I improve our conversion rates? I'm not even going to say the word closing. How do I improve my conversion rates? And the answer is in not where you think it is. They're like looking at the finish line saying, how do we do better here? And I say, you really can't. The finish line is the finish line. We can fix how you got there, meaning the discovery meetings. So often when I, when I look at sales teams and I work with sales leaders, <coughs> improving conversion rates. They want to talk about the finish line. And I say, so when you say that you have issues there, is it they can't ask for the order there? Is their mouth taped shut? What, what's the issue? No, 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 no. Deals evaporate or we get squeezed on price. Ghosting, which is the, the fun new expression where they, they just stop talking to you and all these other issues come up. All of those are symptoms of the real issue, which is in 
discovery, right? Because that's where we capture key information through thoughtful, insightful questions. That's where we position our meaningful differentiators. That's where we uncover anything that could be a roadblock or an obstacle later. So when there are issues at the finish line, I always tell sales leaders, go back to the starting line. Now tell me about discovery. And, and the, here's the question I love to ask them. Let's say they have 10 salespeople. If all 10 of your salespeople called you and said, I just had a great discovery meeting, what would you know for sure, for certain, took place in that meeting? You know what the most common answer is I get? What is it? Not a darn thing. Oh because they've never prescribed it. So each one of the 10 salespeople handles discovery in whatever way they feel is appropriate. Now, how does that make sense? Because I'll say, so if you hire 10 people to manufacture your product, would you let each one of the 10 of them do it in whatever way they, they felt like? Of course not. Well, why not? It's inefficient. We keep making mistakes. Uh, all of these other, well, why do you do that in sales? If you're selling the same stuff to the same people, why wouldn't you prescribe the handling of that step, meaning discovery? And so that's the lengthy conversation I'm having with sales leaders and say, if, if you want to improve conversion rate, improve the finish line, you've got to improve the starting line. Interesting. It's that same lack of structure that we have though throughout sales, because I mentioned very coaching before, because we let sales managers coach their salespeople whatever way that they want to. You know, and it might differ from salesperson to salesperson, but it usually does. And it's like each sales manager falls into their own little cadence and their own little habits and they all do it differently. But yet, you know, they're the same salespeople selling the same product. So, you know, we have we have that issue there, too. Exactly. And there's a chapter dedicated to the book all around putting together an effective discovery problem, uh, discovery program, I should say. Now, when we look at discovery, and, and putting one of those programs together, the most common approach is, let's make a list of all the questions that we should ask, uh, and what information should we share? But if you think about it, you can come up with an infinite number of questions and only a select few that people are gonna tolerate. And you could talk about your company for 16 hours, but no one's granting you a 16 hour meeting, nor would you want one. <laughs> so what do we do? And the answer is, to start again at the finish line, which is imagine the meeting is over. You're walking back to your car, getting ready to pick up the phone and call your sales leader and tell them about this meeting. It was a great meeting if you accomplished what? So let's identify the set of outcomes that would meet the criteria of a great discovery meeting. And then let's say there's 25 items on that list. Then we ask ourselves, what am I gonna ask? What am I gonna say? What am I gonna do to achieve each one of those desired outcomes? So what questions am I gonna ask during the meeting? Only the ones that tie to the outcomes on the list. What information am I gonna share? Only the ones tied to the outcomes on the list. So I provide the, the recipe and how to put that discovery program together and sell different. I like your reverse engineering the process, basically. So Absolutely. do you do that for outbound prospecting, which most, well, not most, I, I don't want to use a broad brush, but a lot of salespeople push back and say cold calling and outbound prospecting is like they'd rather have a root canal. <laughs> what <laughs> what uh, do you reverse engineer that process to or what are your current recommendations in the book for that? 
Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, I, I hear the same things. Cold calling and prospecting are dead, right? So that's what you're talking about? Yeah. Are you familiar with the Rain Group? I'm not, but Lee, are you? Not. Lee, Very, number two, are you? No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, you should look them up. Very well-respected consulting. I'm very familiar with them, and we actually run in the same circles together. So You do? No. So you do know yeah. them? Oh, okay. I, I know them, but yeah, I'm not a, not a member of them. No. Okay. Well, they had a study they put out for, for public consumption where they asked executives if they had ever taken a meeting with a salesperson who had reached out to them through some sort of prospecting. Okay. What percentage do you think said, yes, I took a meeting with a salesperson who reached out to me through some sort of prospecting? CEO level? Here's you, sorry. Senior executives. Um, I don't know, 90%. Lee? I would Lee think that number's pretty high. Yeah, I would, I, I would go 78%. 82. <gasps> 82. That's still a good yeah. number. When I, it is a great number. Yeah. When I ask salespeople that question, I'll do a keynote and I'll bring up this point. What percentage? I get low single digits. Wow. And they're shocked. <laughs> they are shocked when they hear that number. But the study went a step further. They figured out the secret sauce, the key ingredient to getting those meetings, which was personalization. Mm -hmm. So if you're using generic emails and generic phone scripts, generic voicemail messages, you were not getting the meeting. Mm -hmm. But personalization in the approach, meaning there was purpose to the outreach. And in my prior book, Sales Differentiation, I introduced this concept that helps to personalize the approach. I call it a sales crime theory. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept, but it's this. Imagine it's two in the morning. There's a pounding on your front door. It's the police. They wanna have a conversation with you about a crime that's recently been committed. Now they don't randomly pick you and your home for this conversation. They follow a trail of evidence, put together a crime theory, which has led them to you for a conversation right now. So you can probably see where we're going. Sales crime theory works much the same way, which is there's a reason why we're reaching out right now. And it's founded in the answer to this question. Why should they want to have a conversation with you right now? Not why should we talk with them? That would be egocentric. Why should they want to have a conversation with you right now? So we have to first identify the types of sales crime theory evidence that if we came across it, would say, ah, they should want to have a conversation with me right now. Would you like an example? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. One, for, by the way, Lee, one of the things I like about where we're going here is that uh, you know we're putting the lens in the pointing the lens in the right direction. It's like we're looking at it's like you know we're making them the center of the story rather than making ourselves the center of the story, which is the first mistake that a lot of salespeople make right off the bat. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's say we sell audiovisual equipment for conference rooms, niche. Well, what types of sales crime theory evidence, if we came across it, would say ah? they should want to have a conversation with me right now. We find out there's a relocation, an acquisition, an expansion, a new CIO is hired, a new CEO is hired. If any of those things are going on, they're probably having a conversation about the technology in their conference rooms. Since that's what we do, they should want to have a conversation with me right now. That's the concept. 
when we understand what those types of sales crime theory evidence are that would say they should want to talk with me right now. Now we conduct all these web searches, for example, Google alerts that tell us when these events happen so that I know the right time to reach out to them and I can personalize the outreach. Those are clues. Clues. I love mysteries. <laughs> so you're a power lifter, a, a weightlifter, correct? And you've got two sons yeah, that can, play baseball? I'm a competitive power lifter. Uh, my boys are college baseball yep, players. Baseball, yep. Um, I, I compete in the bench press. Yeah, so what do you bench? What do I bench? Okay, so competitive powerlifting, the most I've ever done is 336. <gasps> wow. It's an odd number because it's in kilograms, so it converts to pounds. In the gym, I've done 370. But I don't know if you've ever seen competitive powerlifting. It's not the same thing you see in the gym. Hmm. Uh, you get a lift off. You have to wait for a start command, bring it down to your chest, wait for a press command, and then bring it back up. Your feet have to remain flat. Your head, your butt have to remain in contact with the pad. If any of these things happen, you get these red lights, which means your lift doesn't count. I say a lot of people that, you know, back when I was playing football, it was like, you know, the, the butt would come off the bench and everything like that. They'd press against the bench for their shoulders and that it's like, and it would be just a moment on the chest and then right back up again. Yes. So I, I was more of a leg guy. I was more of a leg press kind of guy. So it's not surprisingly okay. I'm a long distance cyclist now. So here, here are my legs. They're really small. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's kind of what like my bird legs, like. little bird. <laughs> oh God. So, but so you, 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 you see, you like in the, but the two of us together, you'd have Lee Ferrigno, another Lee. So there the you Hulk. go. You'd have the Hulk. Um, but you, you use a lot of athletic analogies, um, you know, in your writing and in your philosophies. And so what's maybe your favorite one that can be informative? So I would say the most relevant one for sales leaders is one I'm sure you've heard where salespeople are contrasted with athletes. We love comparing the two, right? Mm -hmm. But there is one fundamental difference that I think invalidates the entire contrast. If you think about what professional athletes do, they work hours, days, weeks, months, years perfecting their craft. So when they're in competition, they perform flawlessly. So if you think about baseball, you can't stand up there at the plate, the pitcher's throwing 100 miles an hour and say, okay, so where should my hands be, and my head, and my feet, and my hips? You can't do it. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna be successful in that situation, it's all the work that you've done prior to prepare. So your body performs flawlessly, muscle memory. What do salespeople do, most of them? They play the game over and over again, hoping to get better. Mm -hmm. And to me, that almost completely invalidates the contrast of salespeople with professional athletes. So, uh, and I'll ask salespeople, have you earned the right to refer to yourself as a professional salesperson? If you're not working outside the game, trying to improve so that you're better tomorrow than you were today, you're not, you haven't earned that. And that doesn't mean that the day ends at 501. Right. And I think the mistake that a lot of sales leaders make with this is they talk about having role-playing sessions. And role-playing to me does not present the seriousness of that event. I'm anti-role-playing. I'm a huge fan of skill practice. And I'm not saying salespeople are gonna like that any more than they do role-playing, but just like mom made you eat your vegetables, 
you, you need to do this too. Love me on payday. Love me when you're in President's Club because you practiced and you were prepared for the game. You know, it's like hockey players. They like to skate. So, I mean, their off-season conditioning is like, what do they do? And they're out there skating. You know, they're not practicing skating. They're not working on, on, on their leg lifts or anything like that. It's like they're out there skating because that's what they like to do. And that's... Absolutely. So salespeople like to sell. Mm -hmm. Salespeople like to sell. But if you think of the impact on the business where you're out there, let's say the company's not generating leads. The salespeople are, are doing their own prospecting, which means they're on site. They are the brand. Mm -hmm. And if they're Always. inept at it, it's not just, well, I'll just go get the next one. We've now created an impression in that organization of us. Good luck to the next salesperson now trying to get in with that same individual. That makes, brings up a good point that you mentioned during your first book, uh, which is uh, that a lot of people have the idea that marketing is really what differentiates our company from another company. When in reality, then it's everybody that's customer facing. I don't care whether it's customer service, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, anybody that communicates to the customer, you know, has, has a role in that differentiation. Is that, uh, is that still your point of view? It is, and, and in Sell Different, I take it a step further. Um, there's a chapter in there dedicated to the difference between customer service and account management. Commonly used by sales leaders and executives as synonyms, they're not. Customer service, is a responsive function. This is when you're asked for something and the measurements are, did you get it right? Did you do it timely? Account management is the wrapping around the whole relationship. These are the proactive things that you're doing to provide additional value in the relationship beyond what the features and functions provide. And, and there's a chapter in the book dedicated to putting this into practice, um, a, a skillful way of organizing and analyzing your client portfolio. And, and one of the common mistakes I see with account management is everyone has to have the same account management experience. That's not true. So in a lot of companies, you'll see they've got their A clients, their B and their C, and it's on a pretty piece of paper and they've got the nice list. So what does it mean exactly? And the answer is nothing. They treat the C clients the same way as they treat the A. Well, there's a cost to providing account management. Everyone can have the same experience. I'm not saying you don't treat all clients well, you absolutely should. And if you don't want the business, have them go elsewhere. But every client that you wanna have, you treat well, but not necessarily the same. Well, congratulations you, on the- you, you treat them the way that they wanna be treated. So people at the C-level expect to be treated a little bit better than the people, that, that, than the rank and file folks. There you go. Or yeah. just based on, on the company and you look at the over, overall value that that client represents to your business. Mm -hmm. And you use that as a consideration point when determining the level of account management that you want to and can afford to provide. Well, selldifferentbook.com is the website. Congratulations on the book, Lee. It's great it's actually, tips. Selldifferentbook.com. Yeah, selldifferentbook.com. And uh, you got it. out now and uh, hold it up so they can see the cover again. It's a snazzy looking cover there. Very good, sir. Thank and. You. Well, I best of luck to you with the company and all your work. And we are so lucky to get you today on the show. Great stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.